0: So we're actually in Galatians chapter three and just five verses from 10 to 14. But let me try and give you a a very quick summary and I'm gonna read it just so I don't beat about the bush too much. So it's a letter written by Paul to four churches in a district that's called Galatia and that's in central Turkey. The the churches are Lystra, Iconium, Derby, and Pisidian, Antioch. Um, And there's a nod there to unity Um, because he's writing one letter to four churches and um, they all have similar issues and they all have the same obligation Paul was well known to the churches in Galatia because he was instrumental in their establishment Um, Paul's letter came very early on so we're thinking that these churches were only around for perhaps one or two years so it's that early on in the experience The letter to us was to address what Paul describes as an astonishing U-turn in the Galatians' doctrine and practice. They had accepted the notion preached by a group called the Judaizers that following the Old Testament Jewish law, as well as faith in Christ, was necessary for salvation. Paul is outraged because they don't seem to realize that accepting this false teaching completely undermined the basis of the true gospel which is salvation by faith in Christ alone. The suggestion that following Old Testament law, specifically the practice of circumcision, was to imply that God's provision of the Lord Jesus as our Saviour was somehow insufficient and needed to be added to by our own good works. Paul wastes no time in getting to the core purpose of his letter, which of course was to address this heresy and its implications And his direct approach with fewers and graces makes the letter stand out and emphasises Paul's zeal for the true and only gospel and his zero tolerance for any who would preach something different. Of course, in the process, he has to remind them of his credentials as an apostle. Why else would they believe him (coughs) as opposed to these rather impressive Judaizers and their message? In chapter 2, the focus is on this specific point. That's his his credentials as an apostle. He makes um, reference to meetings with those who are considered to be, quotes, the pillars of the church, namely Peter, James and John. Point to note there, it's not James, the James who is the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, but probably James, the the half-brother of the Lord himself. He emphasises that he had conflicted with Peter during these, at least one of these meetings, on this very point about circumcision. And the issue had been debated and unanimously resolved. Um, Paul goes on to say how he himself was endorsed uh, as an apostle by those pillars who gave what he calls the right hand of fellowship, as, they were sent out, as he was sent out with his friend Barnabas, To go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles worldwide. Paul also stated that they recognized him, that in him they recognized the grace of God. So they were referring to the transformation that had taken place in his life, adding to his spiritual credibility and integrity. Having laid out plainly the issue which needed to be urgently addressed, and having established his own credibility and integrity as an apostle, In chapter 3, which is where we are today, the beginning of it was introduced by in last week, Paul now gets into the meat of his theological argument and presents a case that salvation is exclusively by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his redeeming work, and not in any way to do with adherence to Old Testament Jewish law, or in fact any good that we can do. Before we read the passage today, it's just those 10 verses, I wanted to take the opportunity to follow up on a couple of things that I personally missed in my own last ministry, which is probably about two or three weeks ago, so a distant memory or not even that perhaps in the in some of you. But um, first thing is, you might recall it was the day before the Overseers Conference, and we were referring to... Um, Paul having discussions with other Overseers about doctrinal things. So we took the opportunity to share with you a couple of the issues that were on our agenda for the Overseers Conference. And I'm pleased to report that we made progress with those things. And they're they're really meaty things. So contemporary moral issues relating to medical ethics, transgender uh, and related moral issues, the role of deacons and universal care of the saints, particularly in relation to mental health. So these are very... Uh, important topics of our today and culture. And our commitment as overseers is is we will report back, we promise. But um, it's quite meaty stuff, so we'll probably have to have a separate um, meeting at some point to give you some feedback on that. But we do appreciate your prayers for that because we did make good progress. Now the second point, if we go back to um, chapter 2, verse 10. And Galatians, at least at this part, is very much... Um, focused on doctrine and sometimes we can be perhaps intimidated a bit by this idea of doctrine, you know, it's theory and um, at the end of verse 10 there's what I'd like to call a Columbo moment I don't know whether there's any other Columbo fans in here but you know when he's, um, he's doing his investigation and he's just about to leave the room and says ah there's just one point and it turns out to be the most significant point Well, there's a Columbo moment in uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. In the midst of all of these um, discussions about doctrine, and it's those pillars, it's Peter, James and John endorsing Paul and Barnabas and saying, you know, go on your way, you have our blessing, preach to the Gentiles. And then, oh, by the way, continue to remember the poor. And it just struck me that... um, no, we need to balance um, doctrine with Christian practice. I'm going to say balance, I don't, I don't want to suggest compromise. I'm saying we have to get doctrine right and we have to get Christian practice right. And in this context it was about continuing to remember the poor. So we're neither use nor ornament if we only have one without the other. We need solid doctrine which is the core of Galatians and we need it to be complemented by um, practical Christianity so I'm now back up to speed having said the things that I wanted to say let's go to Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 the um, title that David Woods has given us for this section is redeemed from the curse of the law so uh, in the first part of um, chapter 3, which Ian dealt with last week, we're getting into the meat of the theological argument about salvation um, by faith in Christ's work at Calvary, and not by works, not by uh, adhering to the law. And um, he goes back in those first few verses to talk about Abraham. We'll, we'll come back to that maybe in a, in a second. Well verse 10... All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. It's just five verses, and I'm a little bit bit ashamed to say that you know, the expression like Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Um, I know that's a familiar verse. Could I have told you it was in Galatians 3? I don't think so, not until i had done my study. Uh, and it just seems to me that here is a key passage of Scripture. There's, there's many that drip off our tongue. Obviously, John 3 and 16 is one. But I, I would just encourage us to immerse ourselves in these five verses in Galatians 3 because they are so significant. They encapsulate what the Christian message is all about in just a few verses. So, if you're into homework, um, maybe we should try and commit these verses to memory. That's the best way to um, get our minds into them. But I'm going to suggest that there are three uh, principles that we can draw out of these five verses. The first is the principle of the curse that is on humankind Every individual is rightfully destined for the wrath of God and is of themselves helpless to do anything about it and therefore hopeless. Point one. Number two, the principle of redemption of fallen mankind, the only just solution to this problem. God the innocent becoming the cursing self and in so doing procuring or redeeming our salvation This is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. Number three, the principle of the righteous will live by faith. All we can do and all we must do is to believe. Let's go to our first point. So the principle of the curse that is on humankind. And I'm saying every individual is rightfully destined for the wrath of God and is of themselves helpless uh, to do anything about it, and therefore hopeless. We can't get into the true gospel without talking about the wrath of God. And it's a topic that I'm guilty of avoiding, because it's kind of a, a bit of a, a turn-off. You know, it's, um, it's just easier and more comfortable to focus on the love of God, isn't it? And why would we worry people with the wrath of God, but it, it seems to me that we we can 't um, be faithful in our understanding ourselves or in our preaching of the gospel unless we talk about the wrath of god and it 's like a a bit of a chain one um, one facet of god 's character and our salvation leads to the exploration of another so We're drawn to the holiness of God. We can't understand the wrath of God unless we understand the holiness of God. We're uh, drawn to the problem of sin, a damaged world, damaged individuals. We're drawn to think about justice. The wrath of God is about justice and God's requirement for justice. And justice implies satisfaction. So we're not dealing with a, a God who whose moral requirement for justice cannot be satisfied. It can. And that's the the centre of the Gospel. Um, The specific verse we're thinking about is verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That quotation is um, from Deuteronomy 27, and it's, it's kind of laboured because in Deuteronomy 27 it's a whole list of things that the people must do and after each sentence if you don't do it you're under a curse and then there's a kind of summary it kind of says so if you are guilty of not adhering to all of these then you are cursed it goes back to um, something we were trying to share last Sunday with our friends at Community Kitchen Um, And we were trying to answer the question, where do thorns come from? (laughs) Kind of a strange thing, isn't it? But um, we were thinking that when God created everything uh, in those six days, as we have the accounts in in Genesis, he says he looked at everything and and God saw that it was very good. And um, there are many people out there who are eager to point out the things in the world that are not very good. And saying, you know, how can God be a God of love and create all of these things? And they point to things that were never there in the first place. And if we go to Genesis 3, we get it written down and we have our hook to the point about curse. So this is after the fall of Adam and Eve. And God says um, to Adam and Eve, cursed. Actually, it's to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. So we're introduced to the concept of what was once a perfect world, a creation in which everything was very good, to a spoiled world. And the transition from perfect to spoiled was sin. And um, sin is about not conforming to God's standard. And we have the expression, all who rely on observing the law. And what Paul is referring to is the documented um, Levitical law, if you like, in its simplest form, the Ten Commandments. Um, And um, he's saying these things are written down. And anyone who thinks that they can uh, satisfy God's requirements by Adhering to the law is on a hiding into nothing, because no one can do it. It's a really interesting verse in Romans chapter 2. And actually, it's interesting, Galatians is a little bit of a potted Romans. Romans, I think, has 16 chapters, but it's dealing with the same thing, law and grace. So there's a lot more argumentation in Romans. But Romans 2, 14 and 15, Paul says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's the written Levitical law, the Ten Commandments, um, indeed when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law that's talking about they have a kind of instinct uh, instinctively they know what's right and what's wrong um, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law since they show that the requirement of the law is written on their hearts their consciences also bearing witness so you've got the law written in two places it's written on the tablets of stone for the people of Israel and that's the reference point so um, in Paul's argument he's saying if we're living by the law which includes circumcision and all those other things 600 odd uh, commands then we're cursed because we'll fail and by the way going to Romans if you're a Gentile and you don't have the law because the law was written for the Jews actually where does your conscience come from? And that's that's the thing which differentiates us from animals and plants and all the other things of creation. It's it's the bit about us that's made in God's image that makes us distinctive. So um, what Paul is saying is your very consciences will tell you that there is a standard. And which of us can say that we've um, conformed to, to that standard? I mentioned the holiness of God is... It comes into this whole appreciation, and there are so many verses on there. I just pulled one from first John one and four, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I think that's a really great illustration um because if if you've got light uh where's darkness you know the very the very um idea of light is it illuminates and um, brings uh, somehow dismisses darkness and you have the sense that God is light it's his holiness and in him is no darkness at all um, so a- again if God is holy and somehow there is a tolerance of wrong then he's not holy anymore you know, we can't have these two things uh, coinciding together We need to consider the problem of uh, the damaged human race. That's including me and you. It's a a consequence of wrong choices. And maybe we're confronted with that um, really difficult question. Well, you know, if God loved us, why did he put us in an environment where we could choose to do wrong? And if wrong is the real problem uh, in the world, then actually it's God's... (sighs) ultimately boils down to his fault. Um, I've had help on that question, and it's a profoundly deep question, and at the end of the day, we have to accept these things by faith. We'll come to that in a second. I've had help from that um, uh, question around um, why why does this happen? And God is also love, and the only context in which God was able to demonstrate his love is in an environment where we have choice. So, And it's, it's his love to us that then creates a response in our hearts to give him love in return and worship and all of those things. And that's not about stroking his ego, <laughs> that's about us living fulfilled lives it's what we were designed to do to enjoy god's love and to enjoy god in every aspect of our lives so he's put it as put us in an environment where we can choose and there's huge benefit from us choosing but um adam chose to do wrong and as a consequence that's where um things got spoiled there's a um, An interesting verse which we'll have next week, it's it's verse 22 of Galatians 3 and it says, the whole world, the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Maybe we'll understand whether that means the whole world as in all people or whether the whole world means all creation. I'm inclined to think the latter, so that we look at a world and it's damaged. Thorns, perfect illustration, and it's damaged by sin. What is the curse? The curse is the wrath of God. So we're talking about God's holiness and it's uncompromised and we're talking about justice. Uh, God, in all of his holiness, needs to see that justice is being done when things are wrong. There's a verse in Ezekiel 18 verse 20 and in fact if you look at the whole of Ezekiel 13, it's, it's one of those passages that I really need, at some point, to properly understand in its context, I have to say Ezekiel is not a regular reading pattern for me. But it's a, it's a, it's a verse I think we can take and apply in our lesson today. It says, "The soul who sins is the one who must die." Older version: He, the soul that sinneth, it must die. And that's just the that's that's justice in a nutshell. If god's justice is to be satisfied and his holiness is to not be compromised then where there is sin death has to accompany that that's just that's just the way god is Um, we then move on to justice and satisfaction which leads us to our our second point we've had the the principle of the curse of humankind and that's about wrong choices that have impacted individual people have impacted the whole world which is affected by sin. The second point is this amazing escape that God has created and it's the principle of redemption of fallen mankind. (coughs) I said the only just solution, it's God the innocent becoming the curse himself and in in so doing um, procuring or redeeming our salvation, purchasing our salvation, the ultimate demonstration of his love. <clears throat> it's an interesting illustration that's not used very often, at least I don't think so. Um, Moses is up in the Mount, Mount Sinai and he's getting the law. So he's, ha- he's having this uh, amazing interaction with God and it's the law including all of the detail for the tabernacle that would be the basis of the worship of God's people. He's up there for six weeks uh, with Joshua and God. And he's, um, the people are getting um, really restless. And they've come out of Egypt with all this gold. Um, remember the Egyptians were saying, go, you know, take, take whatever you want. Um, and so they get Aaron to pull all the gold and make the calf. And God can hear what's going on. And he says to Moses, we've got to stop this. You go down and sort them out. Because they're worshipping, after what I've, oh, what I've done for them. And what we're doing now in creating these, um, this covenant, they've already turned their back on me. And Moses comes down, he's furious, um, and grinds the calf into dust, makes them eat the dust. Um, and it has the desired effect. They're really repentant. And they say, go go and plead to God for us. So Moses goes up the mountain and he says that they're very contrite. <laughs> you know, they realize the shocking thing that they've done and they're pleading your forgiveness. And by the way, it, if you can't find it in yourself to do it, then take me, I'll atone for them is the expression. And I, I kind of have this imagination, God takes a step back and says, really? You think that you could atone for those people? What what about your own wrong, Moses? You you can't atone for someone else um, because I'll deal with you when your time comes. It's just a lovely picture of the situation that we're in. Moses was an amazing, faithful man of God, the meekest man he's described as. And uh, he spoke to God as a man face to face with his friend, but he was spoiled by sin just like us. And that's the reason why only the person of the Lord Jesus Christ can be an effective um, solution to God's requirement for justice. Because every other person has their own problem and uh, uh, is deserving of God's wrath. Key verses 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed, is everyone who is hung on a tree that's a reference back to Deuteronomy 21 it's a really curious thing <coughs> someone in the Israelite <coughs> community committed a sin for which capital punishment was the result they would be executed probably by stoning and then their corpse would be put on a tree and um, the law was, don't leave it on a tree for more than 24 hours. It needs to be taken down. The, the point has been, it's a really gruesome thing. And I was trying to think, well, wh- why would you do such a spectacle? Imagine the, the horror of seeing someone who'd been executed, probably stripped naked, and the pinned to a tree. And I was thinking, there's, there's two reasons for it. It was a... Demonstration that justice had been done, however brutal we might think, um, that's what was required by God's holiness. So people would see, yes, um, our holy God's justice has been satisfied, and there was no question, it was before their very eyes. And then, what a, an amazing deterrent for someone who would um, be in fear. <laughs> Of making sure they adhered <coughs> to what they had committed to, because that would be the outcome you know and, and Paul is using that illustration in his argument about the person of the Lord Jesus at Calvary. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the Lord by becoming the curse for us, for his written curse it is everyone who is hung on a tree you know we i 've had it in my mind I, I find myself sometimes using the same expression over and over again, and I apologise for it because I've probably used it a few times in the last few weeks, but isn't the crucifix an icon? It's, um, it's something that's recognised the world over. And I'm, probably many people don't even know what it means um, or where it comes from these days. Um, but it's an, it's an icon that has that effect, that it demonstrates... Uh, and it 's not the cross itself, of course it's the person on the cross. but you know it draws our mind to the fact that justice has been done. And is there a deterrent? <laughs> Thank God it's not a deterrent because it 's not about us saying um, we have to stop sinning. we can't stop sinning it's a it's a guarantee <laughs> that actually um, god 's justice has been satisfied and we have no no worry about it. That's just the, the wonderful illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ, the holy eternal Son of God, perfect, becoming a curse for us and hanging on a tree. It's a demonstration of God's justice satisfied. And it's a proof to us that we have no um, nothing to be worried about once we've um, accepted him as our saviour. There's a very well-worn illustration and I'll tell it you really quickly about this idea of of substitution and lots of more elaborate things but the, the point is there's a, a court case and we have um, someone who for whom there is no question about their guilt and they're standing in the dock and the, the judge is there and let's say it's a fine and if you can't pay the fine then it's in prison and there's just no question about the person's guilt um, and they have nothing to pay uh, so you know custodial sentence is, is coming their way and then you have this um, situation where the judge disrobes himself So he takes all his official garb and his wig and all that stuff off. He steps down from um, his position, his throne, or however we might call that. And he walks over to the dock and draws alongside the condemned. And he pays the penalty for them. And that's just a simple illustration of the one who um, is our judge becoming a curse for us so that we can know the righteousness of God in our own experience I was trying to think of how the Lord Jesus looks this thought came to me as I was reflecting on cursed is everyone who's hanging on a tree and it's the Old Testament point the The corpse of an executed person is there for all to to see. This is a scary thought for me in Isaiah 52. It says, many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. It's a, a description of the physical disfigurement of the Lord as a consequence of his sufferings. And we, I think we get the point that the Lord's marks in his hands and his feet and his side will still be there in all eternity. Because in Revelation it talks about the lamb looking as though he'd been newly slain. I think that's where we get that from. You can correct me if there is more to it than that. But I worry about those other marks. He was more disfigured than any man. And when we see him, which we will, you know, maybe we have this rather romantic picture of uh, of the Lord, the way he's depicted in all kinds of illustrations. But he bears the marks of Calvary because he became the object of God's wrath for all of sin against mankind. And he's he's there as proof that God's justice has been satisfied. The scary thought is, is what does it look like? And that's just compelling, isn't it, to reflect on that. And maybe it's dangerous to speculate. Maybe there are others more well-read than me that can explain a bit more background to that. There's a, a challenge for someone to help me out with that one. Second point, the principle of redemption of fallen mankind, the only escape route. Final point. The principle of the righteous will live by faith. And it's all we can do is believe. We go to verse 11. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law. we talked about that. Because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Last week, Ian was um, introducing us to Paul's starting point, which talks about God's relationship with Abraham verse 6 I think it, it is, he says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness so we get a principle right back in those early days that actually salvation righteousness, this um, God's justice being satisfied, actually it was nothing to do with all of those animals that got slaughtered um, that was a, a an illustration a shadow of what was to come. And, you know, God's justice being satisfied was put on hold. It wasn't satisfied by the death of all those animals. It could only be satisfied through the suffering of the Lord Jesus. So he was bearing the punishment for Old Testament people's sins who um, trusted in God and their faith was credited to them as righteousness. To me, these three things about um, the curse um, or salvation by the perfect God becoming the curse for us and our receiving it by faith, they're unique to Christianity. Every other faith, as far as I know, is not about God Himself taking on the wrath that satisfies his justice. It's about people doing their best. And there's a problem there, because it's a bit counterintuitive to think that we can experience salvation from God without doing anything ourselves. You know, um, We're saved by grace through faith, and it's a gift of God. And um, you can understand in some ways that the problem the Galatians had, because someone had come along and said, actually, yeah, you know, there's what went on with this person, Jesus Christ, and you need to believe that. But you can't throw out all those Old Testament um, rules and regulations; they're part of it too. And you can almost think, well, I, you know, I've got some sympathy with that because there's something inside me which says I need to do something. It can't all be just for free. But the Paul was teaching the implications of that are the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is not good enough. And that's heresy. That undermines the whole uh, basis of um, the Christian message. It's righteousness through faith. What What does faith look like? It's about acknowledging the problem in the first place. It's acknowledging the curse that is on us because of our sin and it's it's just it's just it's not unfair it's in the sight of a holy god it's what we deserve so acknowledging that situation faith in our savior is about repentance it's about feeling genuine regret and desire for forgiveness it's by faith we believe we have to trust and believe and it's about saying thank you and it's about enjoying the liberation, the liberty um, from the guilt of sin and from the punishment of sin. What about, what about works? Are they no place? Uh, I came across a, a little statement. It says, our good works are not the cause of our salvation. They are the consequence of our salvation. A genuine saved person who has the Holy Spirit by God's grace, they've exercised faith in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. Their life is transformed and the consequence is a completely new set of priorities that are seen in um, the good works that they do. That's James's message, isn't it? That faith without works is dead. It puts a big question mark. How genuine is a person's faith if there's no evidence of it? Um, and that's for us to reflect on i mentioned that if we were able to embrace these few verses in galatians 3 there is so much in there we just touched on a few things um and i would encourage us to try and embrace them more but what does it lead to it leads to a richer appreciation of what the lord jesus has done for us it leads to love from our hearts and it leads to worship and I just want to close with um, Romans chapter 11. And I mentioned that Romans is dealing with exactly the same topic, but in, a, in much more detail. It's uh, law and grace. And you get, get the sense that Paul has built up this argument and he's, uh, you know, it's not dry doctrine. It's a, a thrilling truth that's been revealed to him uh, a concealed mystery revealed and he's owned it to himself and it just prompts spontaneous worship and you go to verse 33 of Romans 11 oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments How his and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor who has ever given to God that God should repay him For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Shall we pray?